This is the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel. This series features conversations on professional development and growth opportunities within the field of musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Daniel Cognetti. Welcome back to another episode of the AOS Career Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Cognetti. We are excited today to welcome Shannon DeConda. She is a well-respected coding educator and faculty member for the upcoming AOS course, Understanding the Business of Orthopedics, Today's Realities, and Preparing for the Future. Shannon is the founder and president of the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, as well as the president of Coding and Billing Services and a partner at Doctors Management LLC. Shannon, pleasure to have you today. Hi, thank you for having me. Glad to be on. Whether you're a resident or an early career surgeon, just graduate residency like myself, coding matters. It's how you get paid. It's how you keep the lights on. So this is obviously an extremely important part of career development and I think going to be really valuable for our listeners. This will be part one of our AOS podcast on billing and coding with Shannon. We're going to hit on some other issues and topics in part two as well. So Shannon, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe about your upcoming course as well? Sure, absolutely. So a little bit of information about myself, I guess 16 years, maybe fudging it a little bit because I'm a little older than that, but I've done nothing but healthcare. My background is I started as a respiratory therapist. Respiratory therapy jobs just dried up. And the way I worked my way through respiratory therapy school was actually working coding and billing in a physician office. So once jobs started drying up, I went right back to that and I've done nothing else since. Coding and billing change, as we all know, with the wind. And the thing is, the payers don't necessarily have to let you know. So one of the things we're going to talk about in the session that's coming up is the highlight of the past three years has been the big E&M change. And we had another one of those this year as those E&M changes were taken into the hospital and the emergency room. And many of you operate in like rehab facilities and nursing facilities those new guidelines branched into those other new places of service. And I know you have some questions specifically about E&M services. While surgeries are so important because they're high dollar claims, E&M represents the highest volume of claims you will ever bill out of your practice. So we have to get it right. Physicians were cut on average between nine and $12,000 in E&M reimbursement this year. We have to get it right in order to make sure we ensure the integrity, the revenue integrity of our practices. Let's talk about the EM codes then, because yeah, we see a ton of patients in clinic and maybe you're just trying to bust through and get done. It can be a slog. So what are the changes that have recently happened that you think people need to know about and how can we best make sure that we capture the money that we deserve and we're working towards? So one of the things that is more commonly that we see that is an error are individuals still using templates that were created prior to the 2021 documentation guideline changes. And while they can be used, the problem is the guidelines prior to 2021 really focused on you need this many of this and this many of this, and then you have bingo. And that's no longer how the coding system works. Now the coding system in ENM is really focusing on what is the true complexity of the patient and what is the risk of managing that patient. As a matter of fact, 
When we look at the MDM chart, we have three columns. Those are two of the columns. The first column is what is the complexity of the patient's presenting problem? And the last one is what is the risk of patient management? So if those two things aren't clearly identified in the medical record, we really don't have much to base our level of service. So you can document HPI, ROS, PFSH, and the eight-point body system exam, but still not get a level three, level four, level five that you think you're going to get. So it was massively overhauled. Interesting. So how would you say that we should go about making sure that we document it? Should we just be putting an extra comment in the assessment and plan? Should we be including this more in the HPI? How do we go about ensuring that we're doing the proper things? Thank you. That's a great question. So a lot of people have told providers, go back to a SOAP note. Okay, that'll partially get you there. But the problem is if we tell providers, hey, go back to a SOAP note, it implies it's a cousin of the way things used to be. And it's not. What we're really looking for you to do in that prior history area of the note is to describe the patient. What is the best way for you to explain the complexity of a patient's problem? Describe the patient. Describe their symptoms. Describe they can't walk to the mailbox without crippling pain. Describe the level of the crippling pain, how bad the pain is. All of those maybe HPI elements of before, but you're actually not just listing them in a template. You're actually describing them about the patient. Then to your point, in assessment and plan, we are looking for almost a separate segment now that is risk. We do still look at your treatment plan. That's part of it. But it goes beyond the treatment plan. What is the risk of managing that patient on the treatment plan? That's what we're really looking for. And according to the, the chart, that's absolutely. And that's why you'll notice if you ever look at that AMA chart, they'll show examples of, and you've probably seen this, it says examples of moderate complexity prescription drug management. And then everybody wants to talk about what do you have to document to get prescription drug management? And what about a Motrin 800? Because it can be for Advil. Who cares? We do care to some extent. But realistically, who cares? Because it is the risk that is associated. That's really what we're looking at. It's the moderate level risk of managing that patient. It's not necessarily just prescription drug management. So that's what we're getting to here. It's not we're just scoring your treatment plan. We're scoring the risk of managing that patient. I think I see a lot of people use the words like extensive or they try to describe the risk with certain buzzwords. Does that help you at all? Or is it really just a product of putting in this patient has diabetes and for that reason, they're at higher risk of infection because it's poorly controlled? I think it's a combination of both, right? So if you tell me that if I'm reading your note and in the description of the patient, you've said, this patient is doing well since their last visit. They have no complaints. They ambulated well into the room today. They've been walking to the mailbox every day with no complaints. They're no longer going to physical therapy because they feel so great. But then I get down to the assessment and plan, and you tell me that the osteoarthritis is exacerbated and the patient is progressing. The problem is progressing in that patient. 
and it's extensive or it's severely exacerbated, I have a conflict in the medical record. So you have to make sure that the two parts speak together. Buzzwords do help, but again, they have to complement each other. Now, how about some of the other components? We mentioned people are considering like, oh, let's go back to the SOAP note, just focus on identifying or at least showing the level of risk. But like for review of systems, is that something that's required? Will I completely blow your mind if I tell you no? As of 2021, in the office space, review of systems, HPI, past family and social history, as well as exam, those are all now only required as medically appropriate. And in the hospital, ER, and in the nursing facility space, those are now, as of 2023, only required to be documented and performed as medically appropriate. Now, there are some people who are worried of what Blue Cross and Blue Shield or United Healthcare or any carrier may deem as medically appropriate. So far, we really haven't seen a pushback by any carrier saying your exam is not medically appropriate. If it's in your organ system, if you're looking at the muscular skeletal system and the neurologic system, that seems medically appropriate. But if you're looking at the GI system or the integumentary system for something that's not related, the patient's never had surgery by you, but you're looking at the integumentary system, it might seem like that's not medically appropriate. So just make sure you're doing a medically appropriate exam and you should be fine. So there's no counting anymore. There's no certain number of review of systems. There's no certain number of organ systems on any exam requirement. That's great to hear because I was really getting tired of putting non-distended on an abdomen by just looking at a patient and having to hit no, I didn't do a breast <laughs> examination every time. I think that'll help streamline the work. And then I think on top of that, then you can really focus on the risk to help make sure that you're coding and billing appropriately to get what you're doing paid for. So that's great. Thank you, Shannon. Agreed. And one thing I do want to mention here real quick is working with residents. I remember working in, this was a particular educational session I was doing with emergency room residents, and this is before the change, and I was explaining to them what was required and wasn't required in the guidelines, and there was probably about 25 residents in the room, and I could see these like really confused looks on their face, and I'm like, okay, time out. I'm going to be very unprofessional for just a minute and say, what's going on? Because you all look so confused, and I know that I'm speaking English, but it looks like I'm not. Help me understand what's going on. And one of them finally raised their hand and said, like with review of systems, our attending makes us document every organ system. And for every organ system, we have to have three findings about that organ system and the same on the exam. So what you're telling us is exactly contradictory to everything our attending tells us. So I just want to put a time out here for just a minute and say, what I've told you about the new documentation guidelines is absolutely true if you are in your own practice. But if you're a resident and your attending is telling you to do something different, then of course, you're attending rules. So we always have to put that preface here of we do things in an academic world for academic purposes. So just always keep that in the back of your mind, the difference between academia and real world experience. Yeah. 
I think a lot of those times, that's interesting perspective because I just got finished with residency. So I make my own decisions now, at least partly. But the number of myths that you hear in the coding world is just crazy. And I think things like this and having you come on is just super helpful for people to realize, oh, this is actually what you need to do. And this is what isn't necessary. One of the other things with the new updates is the time component of coding and ENM management. I haven't gotten into the weeds too much with this, but can you talk about using time as a component of the coding now? Absolutely. So we've always been able to use time, but what AMA did with the new time-based rules is they made time easier to capture. So before we could only count the time that was spent between the provider and the patient direct face-to-face. They've changed that rule as of 2021 and then in the other spaces as of 2023 to say, you know what, we're going to now allow you to count your total time spent working and dealing on behalf of that patient on that date of service. For example, maybe I have a patient coming in today. They're a complex patient. They've had five revisions of their hip. They've had the hip joint removed, maybe. Whatever's gone on with this patient, but they've got a thick medical record that I need to review before seeing this patient. I spend 30 minutes before clinic this morning reviewing their notes. Write those minutes somewhere so you remember them. Now, when I go into the room to see the patient, I spend another 20 minutes face-to-face with the patient. Now I'm up to 50 minutes. I leave the room with the patient, and now I want to order advanced imaging on that patient, some physical therapy. I document the note because you can count that time as well. And maybe I even want to call the other provider and talk to that provider about the patient. All of that time can be added together, even though it wasn't done in front of the patient. The key is it has to be done on the same calendar day. So if I call Nancy's physician, and that physician, I have to leave a message and they don't call me back until tomorrow. Unfortunately, I can't count that call time as part of my visit because it didn't happen on the same calendar day. But everything else I could count. So that's how time works. But the one thing that I see is in the world of orthopedics, it takes no less than 20 minutes to hit an established patient level three. Most orthopedic providers they're in and out of rooms. We don't see them in the rooms for excessive amounts of time unless you have that patient that asks copious questions. And for that, you can now bill for that, especially if it's patients that you're considering alternative therapies, alternative multiple levels of conservative treatments. You can certainly document that appropriately and bill for it. And what exactly do you have to do? Just a line at the end that says, I spent 40 minutes on total counseling, writing my notes, looking up records, talking to a separate physician. Bingo. You're absolutely right. Now, the key there is your total time you spent and then a statement that confirms your activities. And I hate to put it this way because I never want to sound trite, but it's just being truthful. Essentially, what you're looking for is for that statement to justify how much time you spent. And let me do it this way. We've all had strep throat. I know that's not an orthopedic problem, but just bear with me for a minute. 
if I'm reading a chart and the physician says, I spent 45 minutes with this patient for strep throat, we're all going to look at the chart and go, 45 minutes for strep throat? But if upon reading it, we actually read the note and it says, was a three-year-old child and the last time they had strep, they actually were born a preemie and the last time they had strep, they were admitted to the hospital, they had seizures with fever, we had to give reassuring guidance to mom. Just when mom was leaving the room, dad came in and we had to start the visit all over again. Do you see how that documentation now explains why 45 minutes was required for strep throat? That's an example of what we're looking for your time statement to do. Your time statement is the medical necessity behind the amount of time you needed. Let's keep going with E&M coding and particularly, and I guess it applies to CPT codes as well, but modifiers. I'm in the military myself, but I got some experience at private practice groups in town about coding and some different things that would happen with them and getting paid. Modifiers in particular were a little bit of a sticking point for some people because the 59 modifier, I believe, is for increased complexity. But then I would hear that people wouldn't get paid for a year sometimes on these things. So I'm wondering your take on modifiers, and there's many different types of modifiers and uses, but your take on modifiers and how best to apply them in your practice. Great question. So the best way that I can explain a modifier, first of all, to just put us all on the same speaking level, a modifier is something we append to a procedure code, which is a CPT code, and we do that to indicate to the insurance company, hey, there was something different about this code than is normally. So normally you have a definition of this CPT code we're putting a modifier on it because something was different this time than is normally done to report this code. So that's what a 59 modifier says. You use that example. So a 59 modifier is I build this surgical code and this surgical code. And what the insurance carriers a lot of times say is you normally would do those together or you did those for similar reasons. Therefore, we consider them bundled meaning we're not gonna pay you separately for those two procedures. But here comes 59 modifier. If we put the 59 modifier on it, suddenly they unbundle it and they get reimbursed separately. The danger there is that is called an unbundling modifier, which means the insurance companies scrutinize those claims higher. That's okay, it doesn't mean we don't use it, it means we're smart and we make sure that we can support that. The only time a 59 modifier is supported is if the documentation can clearly show why they were done for separate reasons and not for those same or similar reasons. We have other modifiers that append to E&M services. We have the 24 modifier and the 25 modifier. We have the 22 modifier that attaches to surgical procedures. That's the one you were talking about that says, hey, this was increased complexity today. We even have our modifiers that we attach our AS or our 80 that says we had an assisted surgery with us on this case. Now, not every procedure allows an assist, but if it is approved by that insurance carrier, then we do get additional reimbursement for having an assisted surgery. See, there's two sets of rules we have to go by. There's coding rules and then there's reimbursement policies. Coding rules are the ones that are written in a CPT book that I can pull off a shelf and say, 
In order to bill a 27447, this is the definition of the code and this is what you have to do to bill this code. But if I'm gonna bill that code to Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Tennessee, I have to go to Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Tennessee's payer policy and see if they have a payer policy that varies. United Healthcare may have a payer policy that's different. Medicare, although it's a federal payer, they have different MACs is what they call them, but they're different contractors around the country that pay different jurisdictional claims. Each one of them may have different policies about how they pay a 27447. Again, there's two sets of guidance that we have to look at for everything. There's the coding rules, and then there's the payer reimbursement policies. So we can't just meet just one. We have to meet both in order to ensure compliance, in order to ensure we'll get that accurate reimbursement. Interesting. One other question I had was about clinic visits in particular is orthopedics as a subspecialty and the different fellowship trainings within orthopedics. I've heard that there's some fellowships that create differences with new and established patients for E&M coding. Can you hit on those and what that means for when I'm seeing a patient maybe that's been seen in my clinic before by a different physician? So the best way to know if you can bill a new patient or not is, and I say this is the best way, but it might not be the easiest way is to know if the other specialty or you have a different taxonomy code. So every specialty has a taxonomy code and some subspecialties also have a taxonomy code. In order to be declared new versus established, we have to be following into that different taxonomy status. Not all subspecialties have a taxonomy status. So that would be the key to that is knowing if there's a taxonomy difference. Because what happens is it all goes back to the coding mechanism, right? So think about this. Why do we have coding in the first place? Because when they came out with the system, computer systems were not savvy enough for words to talk to words. So they decided instead of having a chart, we will take that chart and put it into a code 99213. So they started sending in codes, and that's where we came from as coders. So we take that code, we submit it to the insurance company, and it tells them, hey, pay this service. The diagnosis code tells the insurance company, this is why you're paying it, because this is the problem of the patient. The NPI number tells them, you are the provider to pay you. Your taxonomy code tells them this is your specialty. So it's all layers upon layers of numbers. So that's what you have to look at within the system in order to rewind to find out, am I new or am I established? The easy thing too is in your practice, I know a lot of orthopedic practice these days are putting in like internal med and internal med or family practice physicians are like the first layer to see some of those patients to say, this patient really needs to go to joint replacement. This one needs to go to a spine specialist. Internal med to you is always going to be new patient. So I hope that helps a little bit. It's not a black and white answer, but it does help you understand how to find the answer. 
Yeah. Funny enough, I've been getting credentialed at a new hospital recently and I got an email saying, make sure you check your taxonomy through MPS. And because there had been a number of physicians who were still listed as medical students under there for a year or longer, and they weren't getting paid for anything. Like I had to go and check that I was an orthopedic surgeon, no longer listed as a resident. And I found out that, yeah, hand in particular and sports surgery, sports medicine fellowship trained people are separate taxonomy, whereas every other specialty within orthopedics isn't necessarily separate. So if you're a hand surgeon and a general orthopedic surgeon has seen them first, that can be a, a new visit still. But if you go hand surgeon to hand surgeon, it's not necessarily new or joint surgeon to spine surgeon, that's not new either, which was, yeah, definitely pretty interesting. I think our conversation today, I've learned a lot. So I'm sure our listeners will as well, whether you're a resident, early career surgeon, or maybe even more a seasoned surgeon that just hasn't gone over the new guidelines. I think they're really going to find value in this podcast. So really appreciate you coming on, Shannon. Obviously, we're looking forward to your upcoming course on understanding the business of orthopedics, today's realities and preparing for the future. The AOS is a fantastic resource with the AOS Codex app that you can look up CPT codes, look up RVU codes with, and then the website and the AOS coding community has a lot for people as well. So definitely things to check out and super, super appreciate you coming on today, Shannon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AOS Career Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. For more information on this topic and other conversations on professional development, please visit aos.org backslash thebonebeat-career.